Well, as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, this is indeed Labor Day weekend. It's a tradition in our household that that on Labor Day weekend, the, the Sunday of that, that afternoon, we have for the last number of years now gone to Frankenmuth as a family. We play a round of miniature golf and we walk along the Riverwalk area and and it's just become, I don't know how it started, but it just became kind of a tradition that we've done every year as a way to cap off the summer. And as such, it's kind of a bittersweet occasion every year when we do it. It's sweet because it's fun. It's a nice family time. It's a relaxing, enjoyable time that we have together. But it's bitter in that it, it signifies the end of summer. Time to go back to school. Time to, to be done with you know, vacations and, and the like. And so in getting to the end of a good thing, it can be kind of sad. Perhaps you've had that experience before. Perhaps you've had maybe a, a delicious meal, just, just a wonderfully scrumptious meal where each bite was better than the last and it was amazing. And, and you come to the end of it and you're completely full and completely satisfied, but at the same time, a little disappointed that the meal is finished. Or perhaps with a book that has been a trusty companion for you as you've followed through its pages, finally coming to the end, a wonderful story, completed, finished, and you're joyed at the the story, but saddened that it is finished. That's kind of where we are in our study of Colossians, isn't it? We began a study of Colossians the Sunday after Easter. Today, we come to the final verses of the final chapter, and we read the last words in the book of Colossians. We find those words in Colossians 4, verses 15 through 18. I read them now to you, reminding you that this is the inspired word of God. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Our Lord, our God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and specifically for Paul's epistle to the Colossians for all that you have taught us from that book. And we pray that as we look at its pages one last time that you would continue to teach us not just that we might be more knowledgeable but that we might be shaped by your word into the church that you would have us be do that work we pray even now in our midst by the power of your holy spirit speaking to us through your word preached we ask this in jesus name amen It is Jesus indeed who says in Matthew 16, I will build my church. 
and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we need to realize that that is the case. Oftentimes I think we forget that we have our plans of how the church should be. But Jesus says, I will build my church. We don't build the church. Jesus does that. And when he says that he does that, we also need to remember that he's not just talking about Calvary Presbyterian Church, is he? He's talking about the larger church, the church with a capital C, if you will, the church of Jesus Christ. As we've said before, the church of which we are members is a church that is centuries old and continents wide. But Calvary is a part of that church. And since it is a part of the church that Jesus is building, we need to look at what he has to say about how he wants to build it. We don't get to define all the structures. We don't get to determine all the the ways that things should work. That prerogative belongs to him. And in our text today, I believe that we see a little bit about the vision that Jesus has for his church. We see in it, I think, that the church of Jesus Christ is a church that shares in fellowship, a church that shares in instruction, and a church that shares in encouragement. Take a look at what I mean here in verse 15. Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Quite clearly, there was a fellowship that existed between the church in Colossae and the church in Laodicea and the church that met at Nympha's house. We see, we see that there was a fellowship between these churches because of the way that Paul talks about them here. And that's the way it should be, isn't it? There should be a fellowship. There should be a unity within the church of Jesus Christ. Remember that unity of Paul speaks of in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so it is that if we fail to maintain this unity, we are in a very real sense betraying the very unity that exists within the Godhead. And so there must be a fellowship between churches that must exist. It's not a choice that we can make, a decision that we have. There should be, there must be a fellowship between churches, between real Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming Christian churches. There must be a fellowship. Even, even among those churches with whom there might be some disagreement on some of the finer points of theology. Frankly, we've not always been that good at this here at Calvary. We have in the past, at times, had somewhat of a fortress mentality, warring, walling ourselves off from anybody who happens to disagree with us uh, in, in any way. In large part, we've, we've done this, and we've looked down our noses at 
other churches and other Christians who happen to have different theological emphases or different worship styles or perhaps even different political persuasions or or beliefs. This needs to not be the case. Instead, we must be a church that seeks to experience and to exhibit true Christian fellowship with true Christian churches. That's one of the reasons that I'm so excited about Waterbrook Christian Academy coming to be within our walls here. This is a church made up of largely people from other churches. We have one family in our church that's very involved with with the school, but other than that, by and large, this is people coming from a different background, a different church, many different churches, and, and some of them have different emphases in their theology than perhaps we do uh, around the edges of our understanding. But at the core of their understanding and at the core of our understanding is the same thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are all sinners, that we, each and every one of us, apart from the grace of God, are that unrighteous person that we read about in Psalm 11, the person upon whom God would rain coals and fire and brimstone and a burning wind. We all stand to be that person, except for the life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension and current session of Jesus Christ, whereby he has washed us clean of our sin by his blood and he prays for us even now making intercession for us before the throne of grace what a wonderful truth that is and for Christians who can gather around that truth who can share in a priority of that truth we ought to be able to have fellowship with one another the school for instance, might help us financially, perhaps. Uh, we, we are charging rent. Uh, it's, a, it's a low rent. We, we try to figure out what it will cost us to keep repairs up to date and everything. And, and we, we tried not to charge much beyond that. It could turn out to work out that it, it makes us more money than we thought. Um, it could be that the school helps us numbers-wise, that people hear about our church through the school and end up coming, and, and that helps us out as well. It could be that, that it helps us out just with a sense of vitality, something really good happening at the church and a sense of life. And, and all these things are good things that could happen because of the school. But even if none of them occurred, none of them at all, the school would still be a wonderful thing to have happening here. Because it is an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to minister to others, as, as I think you would find. If you talk to the folks from the school, as I have, they, they are quick to say how much they feel like they have been served by us as a church. And that warms my heart. That is certainly our goal here. We want to be servants, ministering to them and ministering in partnership with them. And so it is that they feel like that's been the case. That's a good thing. Um, Also, 
it is a chance to work together with fellow members of the body of Christ. And that's a good thing. Whenever we can do that, whenever we can work arm in arm for the advancement of the kingdom of God, that is a good thing. And so we work together. We need to look for opportunities to cultivate relationships with other Christians that we might continually be working together with other Christians in the advancement of the kingdom of God. That's one of the great things about our conference that's coming up in October. Uh, October 26th, remember, a quick plug here for that. Please, please come to the conference. Please sign up and, and spend a Saturday there. It'll be a wonderful opportunity. There's no charge for anybody to come to that. And it will be a great opportunity specifically to fellowship with Christians from other churches. At this point, of all people who have signed up for it, 85% of the people who have signed up for the conference go to other churches. That's great because we get to see all them, but, but I'd love for those numbers to change a little bit because I would love for all of you to be blessed by your presence at the conference. And so I would love for that to change. But, but historically, it has been the case that half the people who come to the conference come from other churches. It's a great opportunity to fellowship with Christians from other backgrounds, from other churches, Christians who share in their love for the gospel. We'll focus on the glory of Christ. That's the theme of the conference this year. Could there be a better theme than the glory of Christ? Let us gather around that banner. And with other Christians who might be akin to the church in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church that meets in her house. And a quick side note, we might note there that the church met in a house there. A, a house church would, would have been the norm in that day. In fact, there was no record until the third century of churches meeting in church buildings per se. You don't need a big building to be a church. You don't need a big congregation to be a church. Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. And so if it's not a big congregation that makes a church, and it's not a big building that makes a church, what exactly is it that makes a church? That's a good question. And a good answer was given to us in the words of the Belgic Confession, which devotes a paragraph to this very question. It states, the true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel and makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. And it practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. By these marks, one can be assured of recognizing the true church and no one ought to be separated from it. Gospel preaching, preaching on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ Jesus as an atonement for our sins and the means of our salvation. The sacraments, baptism, as we witnessed just this morning, and the Lord's Supper, which we in this congregation will partake next on the first Sunday of October. As I, I would love to see us, we've talked about this some in the past, perhaps taking communion more often than we do. Uh, the, the general practice, I think, in, in Presbyterian churches, uh, standard practice, if there is such a thing, is probably 
uh, once per month, the first Sunday of the month being kind of the standard. Um, that, that would be a wonderful practice, I feel, for us to, to take. Uh, more and more, you're finding churches that take communion every week. And I, I'm not saying that we should do that. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But uh, it's something that, that we might want to consider as a church to have communion more often. And church discipline, which we'll talk about more in just a minute. The true churches are going to share in fellowship with one another. They're also going to share in instruction with one another. I see this in verse 16 where Paul writes, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Now, what exactly is this letter from Laodicea? There's all kinds of different theories that some people say, well, it's probably the letter to the Ephesians, actually, which some manuscripts don't include uh, the word Ephesians in it. Maybe that's what the letter was. And some say, well, it's actually a letter that the Laodiceans were sending out to somebody else. Or some say it's some other letter or this or a letter that we don't have anymore. I think that's probably the most likely uh, most likely explanation if you ask me, but I, we don't know for sure what exactly this letter is. But we do know this, that there is a letter coming to the church in Colossae from Laodicea that has instruction for them. There's instruction that they have in Colossae that they are supposed to share with the Laodiceans. They, they have been given teaching, each church, and they're supposed to share that teaching with the other churches. We're not supposed to just keep what we've learned to ourselves. And we're not supposed to think that whatever we have is the sum total of all true teaching. We tend to get our own pet doctrines, our theological hobby horses that we just kind of want to focus on. And that's the danger of, of not having any outside influences, any outside voices speaking in to your context. So we need to always be looking to do that. We must recognize that we are not the only church to whom God has spoken. He speaks through his word in all churches. If they will hear. Let us have ears to hear. Let us be open to God's teaching, whether it comes directly to us from his word or whether somebody else has learned it and would share it from us or with us from his word. Let us learn from others. That's one of the great safeguards and great benefits of the Presbyterian system. It's not a case where everybody's on their own, just do whatever you want and think whatever you want and come up with your own thoughts and that's fine. No, there's a system whereby there are, there are elders who oversee the teaching within a certain church. And so everybody within that church is, is under the umbrella of the session's teaching. But the session is not, not an end to itself, for there is a presbytery that is above them, made up of elders from other churches that have oversight over that church's session. But even the presbytery, which is made up in our case of churches in, in Michigan and and Indiana and part of Ohio, even that presbytery itself is not an entity to itself because there is the general assembly which is, is over them. And so we see that there are safeguards all along the way that if anybody would, would individually 
or as a church or even as a presbytery get off track heading away from truth and into error, there are safeguards along the way to correct us. It is a beautiful truth about the Presbyterian system of church government and I'm very thankful for it that we can teach others and be taught by others from within our church and from other churches guided not only by what we think we know is true but by the scriptures for God tells us through his word that all scripture is breathed out by God profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness now as we look to God's word I, I think we all all right with being taught okay we like teaching that's a good thing training in righteousness all right I'm up for that When it comes, though, to reproof and correction, we're not quite so anxious to hear what the Word of God has for us, are we? We we don't like that quite as much. And that brings us back to the topic I brought up before and said we come back to of discipline. I told you last week that it was the responsibility of the elders of the church to pray for you, to love you, to serve you, to care for you, to be involved in your life, to be concerned about your individual well-being, and that that was a weighty responsibility that they had, a responsibility that God will hold them accountable for and hold me accountable for. It's a weighty thing. Part of that, though, is the applying of God's word to your lives and calling you to faithfulness. The EPC Book of Order has an interesting phrase, a phrase that the first time you read it might catch you off guard. It says that all active members, both confirmed and baptized, that means this is not just the adult members, but even Even little Sean, who was before us today, this applies to him. All active members confirmed or baptized are entitled and subject to the benefits of discipline. We don't think of discipline as being beneficial. We don't think of it as being a benefit, is it? We think of benefits, we think of like, well, that's like, you know, insurance, you know, or or maybe a pension, something like that. You know, those are benefits, You know, good things, that's what benefits are. Church discipline, how can that be a benefit? Well, it can be a benefit in that when we are wandering into error, we head off in a direction that we don't want to head, even if we think we want to head in that direction. It is a dangerous area to be trotting. And so it is that the shepherd's of the sheep are to call us back to faithfulness. But if we will not walk in faithfulness, then the shepherds need to forcefully bring the sheep back into the pen. And so it is that we are all entitled and subject to the benefits of discipline. Entitled, saying that we should expect it. It should be part of our lives. It should be something that happens. 
That doesn't mean you go straight to excommunication. No, but there should be an elder in your life that is saying, you are wrong in this according to the word of God. It is clear that this is wrong. You need to repent of your sin. And if you don't do that, then that goes to the session. The session, if you will not listen to the session as a whole, might need to take action. It's a terrible thing when that has to happen. But it's a thing that the session does have to do on occasion. And you are subject to it, it says. Subject to it, meaning that when you join the church, you're not just joining a social club. You are submitting to the authority of the elders at that church, to the session as a whole. And so it is that you are subject to it. Now I must say this, it must be discipline that comes from an established relationship of love. The sheep need to know that the shepherds care for them. Much as when I discipline my children, I don't do that out of just anger or because I'm mad at them or because I'm offended in some way or simply because I'm a mean person. But rather because I love them and I want what is best for them and I want to train them in those things. And so I will at times discipline them. That needs to be the attitude of discipline from the session as well. For every word of criticism, let it come only within the context of prior words of love and support and encouragement. That's where Paul turns his attention to in verses 17 and 18. The church ought to share in encouragement. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. A number of short, choppy sentences that seem to have no connection one to another at first, but I think there is a common thread that is woven through these words. That common thread being encouragement. They all point to encouragement. There's encouragement. Let me show you what I mean. That first of all, encouragement for Archippus. He he said see that you fulfill this ministry that you've received in the Lord. This ministry is not something that you have come up with on your own. It's not something that's just been bestowed upon you by man. It is from the Lord. Be encouraged. God has called you to this. God calls us all to things. Each and every one of you sit here and God has called you to certain things. God has placed us all here, not just that we might gain things by being here, but that we might serve the body of Christ. And so it is that we are here to do that. God has given us gifts for that purpose. Gifts that we might serve his body. And I'm going to put you on notice right now. Be praying. Be praying because you all have a ministry. Be praying that God would show you and direct you where you ought to be serving the body of Christ in what way you ought to be serving. Notice I didn't say if you ought to be serving. I'm saying in what way, how. Because God calls all who are Christians to serve him. You don't retire from being a Christian. 
You, know, you don't put in your 30 or 40 years and then hang up your cap and be done. No, we serve Christ our entire lives. And so it is that, that some of us might not be physically able to do some of the things that we used to do when we served God, but there are other things we can be doing. We can be praying, we can be mentoring others, we can be spending time in God's word, studying it with one another, we can be encouraging each other, we can be doing all kinds of things, no matter what our situation in life is. It's a sad truth that in the church, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. You hear that all the time. It, it is a sad truth, and we must do everything we can to make that not be a sad truth here. And so it is that you'll be challenged in the days and weeks to come. But I hope at the same time you'll be encouraged. Encouraged because you know that God has a ministry for you. That he designs to use you here for his purposes. To build up the body of Christ. What a high calling that is. So be encouraged. Paul says, be encouraged by my chains. A few weeks ago, we saw how Paul's chains could be an encouragement because they serve to advance the gospel. True freedom is found only in Christ Jesus, not in a lack of chains. You might have noticed on your bulletin this morning, the front it says, come and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. That's comes from a larger context that says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Taking on a yoke isn't normally a freeing thing. It is to be bound. But Christ says, Take on my yoke. Take on the yoke that is affixed to me and be bound to me be united to me for my yoke is easy Christ says be united to me be bound to me for when you are united to me I will do all the heavy lifting no longer are you standing unrighteous before a righteous God no longer are you standing condemned before a God who sees all that you have ever done and all that you have ever thought but rather you stand before a God who sees only the righteousness of Christ, Jesus, when you are united with him, bound with him, sharing his yoke. And that is why he says his yoke is easy, because he does all the heavy lifting. It's not a matter of us doing as much as we can and then he makes up the difference. No, he does it all. There is nothing we could add to gain our salvation. It is something that Christ Jesus does completely of his own. And he invites us into a relationship with him. He invites us into a union with him. He invites us to take on his yoke. And if we do, we truly can have rest. Not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we've earned, not even because we were smart enough to make the right decision, but solely because of his grace. And that's the final encouragement. Grace is yours. Notice Paul says, grace be with you at the end here. 
Remember back in chapter 1, way back at the beginning, the Sunday after Easter, we started out and Paul opened his letter to the Colossians the way he opens many of his letters. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Grace to you. And now he says at the end of the letter, grace be with you. Why does he say it differently? Why, why the difference in the way he says it? I think it's this. At the beginning he says, grace to you. May, may grace go out to you. And he speaks or writes, as the case may be. And every word he writes is a word of God infused with grace for the Colossians and for us. And now at the end of this book, at the end of this epistle, having poured out all this grace through the word of God to us, he says, may this grace that has gone out to you remain with you. May it be with you. May it work in you. May it be active in you. May the grace of God be with you through the word of God. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let us love the written word of God that we might be more conformed to the likeness of the incarnate word of God. That same incarnate word of God who tells us, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we can entrust that he indeed will do this because of who he is, because of who he is. He is the beloved son of God in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation for by him, All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you indeed that you have made peace by the blood of the cross. We thank you for your work building up the church, making the church what you would have it be. We have failed so many times in so many ways to be faithful to you, both as individuals and as a church. We seek your forgiveness. Help us to walk more faithfully going forward. Help us to Listen to the voices of others who might even have a different perspective than our own. For you speak to us through others' voices. But might those voices that we hear always be 
tethered firmly to your word. For it is your word ultimately that is our instruction and the only rule for life, for worship, for all that we would do. May it be so, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.